Welcome to the Indisposable Podcast, produced by Upstream. I'm your host, Brooking Gatewood. And I'm your co-host, Matt Prindeville. Thanks for joining for another episode celebrating solutions to plastic pollution. Hey, what's up, Solutioneers? As you might have heard by now, Upstream and Closed Loop Partners are bringing the Reusies back this year. The Reusies is a groundbreaking awards program honoring changemakers developing a better way than throwaway, advancing systemic change, and co-creating a world where we can get what we need and want without all the waste. We received hundreds of nominations and narrowed them down to just a few finalists across seven award categories. Honors to be awarded during the show include Most Innovative Reuse Company, Corporate Initiative of the Year, Activist of the Year, and Reuse Community of the Year. Now, it's time for you to go vote. Head to thereusies.org to cast your votes and save your spot at the second annual Reuse Awards, which will be live-streamed on Thursday, September 29th. Tickets are free, and a limited number of VIP packages are available for purchase, which come with amazing perks. And that's not all. This year, all ticket holders are automatically entered to win a Gibson Hummingbird guitar, valued at $3,999, generously donated by our partner, Gibson Gives. So don't wait. Vote, register, and learn more at thereusies.org. That's T-H-E-R-E-U-S-I-E-S dot org. Can't wait to see you there. Hey, what's up, Solutioneers? Welcome back to the Indisposable Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Prindeville, CEO and Chief Solutioneer at Upstream, and today I'm really excited to have Stephanie Thomas and Pat Kaufman on the show. Stephanie's the Vice President and Co-Owner of Cascadia Consulting, and she's assembled and trained and managed teams that have engaged thousands of businesses all over the West Coast to co-design strategies and take environmental action. And Pat is the Seattle Public Utilities Commercial Recycle, Compost, and Reuse Program Manager. Uh, His 30-plus years of experience includes developing recycling and composting programs for the city of Seattle, and he manages projects to reduce waste and help all community members recycle right, compost more, and choose to reuse. Welcome to the show, guys. Uh, Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt, for inviting Pat and I on this podcast. We're huge fans, as we just talked about, and just feel super excited to be chatting with you guys today. Uh, I'm super, super excited uh, to talk with you guys, and, and, the, and the feeling is mutual. I'm big fans of your work. And, you know, before we dive into Reuse Seattle, which is really the, what we're going to get into today, I just wanted to start with, with your stories. And, and from what I've read, uh, you guys have both been career environmental solutioneers, and and Stephanie, let's let's start with you. What made you want to pursue a career in protecting the planet? Gosh, I um, it's so funny to reflect. I was just hooked from my very first environmental studies class that I took at the University of Washington. I right away like signed up to have um, my major in environmental studies, and then I minored, I think, in environmental science and resource management. Uh, as part of that, I had um, an internship with the King County Solid Waste Division, which was a, a client of Cascadians. So that's actually how I first heard about Cascadia was through this internship and my undergraduate degree. Wow. Uh, fun, fun side note, we have an active circular economy project with them today. So <laughs> that was back then when I did that internship. My actual internship was focused on getting employees to improve recycling. And it was just so clear to me from the very beginning that that's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to help educate and inspire businesses, community members to recycle better. Um, And that's actually, I got connected to Cascadia um, back then. They had a entry level position that I started at 15 years ago and am now an executive team member and an owner. So I just feel so fortunate. From intern to owner, I mean that is so. What a great story! <laughs> I got I got to say for all the all the young people that are listening out there, like you know those internships clearly matter, right? Matter. Uh, that that's amazing. That's so cool. Um, what about you, Pat? I mean, I, I got to say, like you know when I was when I was in college, like I I, I 
they, they were just starting to do environmental studies programs. Um, I'm assuming that, you know, when you were in school, because you've been at this longer than both Stephanie and I have, like, were, were there environmental studies programs going on? Is this something you were even interested in back then? Uh, well, okay, you're right. I'm not in the same age bracket as you both. But um, no, I my college days out of high school were not focused on this career path. I had done a lot of operation stuff. I'd worked uh, like labor, um, trades type work uh, coming out of high school. So I found my way into this career by um, being hired on at Seattle Center, which is a department of the city of Seattle, um, where the Space Needle is, the former World's Fair site in Seattle. Um, I was hired on as a grounds crew laborer in 1990. So Within a couple of years, I was doing the recycling for the whole campus, you know, working with wow. the theaters and the Coliseum and all the festivals and events and just found my way into the recycling industry that way, you know, doing, you know, all of the operations stuff. So and that led to working, uh, going, going back to school to get my degree at University of Washington in environmental planning and then um, ended up going to work for University of Washington as a recycling manager for a few years before I ended up at Seattle Public Utilities, which is the role. I have now about the same amount of time as Stephanie's been at Cascadia. So, and we met uh, back in, I think, 2010, 2009, maybe. So we've been working side by side. And we're so fortunate to have Cascadia as our green business program contract manager. It's just a great, it's a great mix of uh, fun and work and, you know, really passion for the industry. So, sounds like an amazing partnership. You know, I, I'm curious, you know, ba- you talked about, you know, starting this work with recycling back in the 90s. And that's really when a lot of these recycling programs were just starting to get get off the ground. And so, I mean, what was what was the landscape like back then? And, and you know, were you were, were people excited to build these recycling systems? Was there a lot of pushback uh, from folks? Were there concerns about cost? I mean, what, what or, or was it just kind of kumbaya and let's let's make this thing happen? I think it's true for most programs, whether we're talking about reuse today or composting 10 years ago or, yeah, recycling in the 90s. It's You've got that core group, that support. You know, you've got the momentum enough with that, but you've got to tackle, you know, the operations side and, um, and really introduce programs and do all the pieces and parts to, you know, coordination of programs and pilot programs. And back then it was a as a ROI, you know, they, they all want to know, is this worth it? You know, am I going right, to make right. my money back? But, you know, in Seattle, of course, we passed laws that made it, you know, mandatory <laughs> to recycle. So we, we went away from that eventually. But um, yeah, back in the 90s, it was, it was very uh, grassroots. And it was, you know, aluminum cans, then plastic bottles came into the mix, you know, and cardboard was always the cardboard and white ledger was always the, the pull through in, in aluminum cans. That was the valuable commodity that kind of expanded the the you know field of different materials from there but it was fun i mean you know the festivals or all of the bite of seattle and the music festivals and back then we had the sonics and the coliseum so we'd do all right that, right you know and launching food waste diversion commercially then that was that was a big endeavor back in the late 90s trying trying that out you know it was all pre pre-consumer vegetative only you know it was like the just like a slice of the food spectrum but it was still work. Same kind of work. This was the uh, Xavier McDaniels era of the sales. Nice. X-Men. Right? Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm curious about just this, this evolution, you know, from, from building recycling systems to building reuse. And, you know, I know you guys have been at this for a long time, but, you know, how did, how did these conversations start and who really got, got this idea for Reuse Seattle going? Go for it, Stephanie. Well, I was gonna I was gonna say that just the the history of the program, um, the Seattle Green Business Program that uh, Pat was just alluding to, that I've been so fortunate to work on since my first day at Cascadia. I was answering a hotline and getting requests from businesses and practicing with a colleague before I responded myself. Um, but back then and over the years, SPUs just had so many different policies um, that have really driven adoption of recycling and compost programs and practices. But as Pat mentioned early on, you know, 15 years ago, it was going out to each individual business, doing a waste audit, helping them look in their garbage and see what recyclable and compostable material was in there, 
We, we built a calculator to help um, identify cost savings associated from recycling and composting more. Mm -hmm. We trained their staff. We put in bins, signage, um, and really, as SPU, to Pat's point, like started doing more policy around requiring recycling and composting, it went from that kind of carrot of cost savings and staff engagement to a little bit more of a conversation around, well, this is required now, and we're still here to help you, still focused on education yeah. and support. Um, but really felt like I think a few years ago, um, SPU and Pat, this is where I definitely want you to weigh in with Sago's legacy, really started to shift to really go upstream and say it's time to revisit waste prevention as a core. We all have that like adage of reduce, reuse, recycle. Um, and our program just had been really almost exclusively focused on diversion and recycling and composting. Um, and it really was just a couple years ago that SPU made that decision to invest and make that shift. So when you're you're talking about Sago Jackson uh, here, you're talking about uh, one of the founding board members of Upstream, who is uh, who I happen to be a huge fan of because he uh, not only did he did influence my work at Upstream, but um, I met Sago literally when I started my career 20 years ago and brought him to Maine to educate and engage our state legislators on on extended producer responsibility. And, and Sago is definitely you know, a major player in helping to bring that to the United States and, and to educate myself on, on all these issues. And so big, big shout out to Sago. And I'm happy to pass it back over to you, uh, Pat, to talk about how those conversations emerged at uh, Seattle Public Utilities. Yeah, that's a good point, Stephanie, how uh, the transition you know, it's still, we're still recycling. Don't get me wrong. We're absolutely still diverting material. But that shift from, a, you know, approaching solid waste or approaching the challenges of resource conservation with diversion strategies, that we're shifted away from that. We're, we're fully pivoting away from that. I can recognize, though, that there are many uh, recycling coordinators and program managers out there across, you know, North America that that's a lot of the work. The work continues to be fine-tune diversion, yep. manage contamination, you know, improve collection. Those are all really important things, and we're not going to build it. This is not going to be a, a flip of a switch. But our focus now at SPU is really to look at the, the source of the materials and look at how we can, within our jurisdiction, change things. And that's why we're focusing primarily on the single-use packaging. We're focused, and we're not, you know, we're agnostic, as, as Amy Larkin likes to say from PR3. She's like, we're agnostic on material. We just want to move away from single use and move into reuse. And so yep. we're on board with that. We're absolutely on board. And Sego is the one who bring, he, he brought that to SPU as a, as a guiding light, as a uh, vision for all of us. He, he just carries mm -hmm. that with him. He can't, you know, he doesn't, he can't leave home without it. You know, he's just like full of that. Um, so... We're, we benefited from that. He was with us for a few years uh, before he retired, which I'm very happy for him. Um, we miss him. And uh, he did, Matt, you're right. He, he just has that, had that uh, effect on all of us. And uh, so, as I say, it's all about, you know, um, source uh, work now. It's more about moving into the space of, of swapping out reusables for single use. And, and how do we get to that? You know, how, how are we going to approach that in the strategies? It's, that's the work. Yeah. I'm, I'm really curious about just what you would say to other recycling coordinators as well. I mean, we can get, I know we're going to get into reuse Seattle here in a minute, but you know, just what you would say to other recycling coordinators that maybe have, have just been hundred percent diversion focused and, you know, now are starting to look further upstream at, at the kinds of impacts that they can have, you know, what, what would the both of you guys say, say to them as for how they might rethink um, their strategies in, in helping to take care of the planet? Stephanie? Yeah, I'll just jump in and say that it's such a refreshing opportunity, both to go back to your like early adopters, your sustainability leaders with something new. We had, yeah. I think we've seen a lot of our businesses in Seattle have been done an amazing job over the years, but you go on site and you look in their bins and despite having great, you know, color coded bins and good eye level signage and following all the recycling best practices, you're still seeing some contamination and recycling and compost stream. And I think there's a little bit of, um, you know, just 
like lack of motivation or energy to focus on really, you know, improving recycling over time. So this mm -hmm. is an opportunity to go back and re-engage and actually offer something new. Um, and I think that's been just a really powerful engagement opportunity with our with our business community to actually bring them like the next best step. Like you're awesome, you've done an awesome job on recycling and composting, you're leaders, um, and here's kind of the next best thing. Um, and it's just so, so awesome. I, I don't want to do any spoilers here, but I'll just say that given that we just launched Reuse Seattle um, and physical space and Pat and I were both interacting with people at our first event, residents in the city, they were just like so excited and so <laughs> and thanking us for being there and oh, like wow. thanking us for taking it to the next level. So I think that's um, that's what I'd say. It's just an awesome way to kind of reinvigorate the conversation. Yeah, I, I remember both of your uh, your presentations at Circularity in Atlanta last month, and just I remember I think it was a question from the audience about you know why why reuse and why now, and you talked about that evolution of you know we we built recycling and then we built composting and and you know those are good, but it's nowhere near enough, and this is the next horizon, and we got to be moving this forward. Pat, what about you? Is that something you would be saying to folks like you in, in cities around the country? Yeah, I, I will just say that, you know, as I mentioned, the work continues on the recycling composting front and contamination continues to be a challenge. And it is, it's, it's, uh, it's tough work. You know, it's, it's thankless. It's uh, to get that, that 15% level of contamination or whatever it might be in a public place collection bin, maybe 25%. It's like, that is hard work, you know, improved mm -hmm. signage, better staff education, better public engagement. And that's all to <laughs> try and fine tune this commodity of a single use substrate of a, of a right. one and done item. And so right. you can right. pour loads of time and energy and money into fine tuning that to try and upgrade that that stream so that it's a better, you know, feedstock for your recycle center or for your compost facility. Or you can shift and look at reuse. You can look at, yeah. hey, you know what, why is this cafeteria using single-use whatever substrate cups and yeah. containers? Why is yeah. this, this venue using this? Why are these folks in this, you know, hotel or this conference center or something using it? Let's talk. Let's have the conversation. Let's see how excited they are about reuse versus contamination, uh, I think it's a pretty easy sell uh, shift. And so for me as a, you know, I'm, I'm attracted to shiny objects, I'll be honest. And this is one of those <laughs> things. Sometimes that, you know, you have to worry about that. Like, okay, focus on your scope. What is, what's the next logical thing to do? And this became an option. Well, we could look at this and Sago Jackson, again, was one of the ones who said, you know, you start looking at this and but it became much more of a strong strategy, not just a distraction, of course. There have been many other, you know, the, the compost machines that come and went. And then the, there's, there's different mechanisms out there, different like uh, venture capital-backed uh, things that kind of right. Cro right. crop up now and then in the solid right. waste industry, incineration or waste energy or whatever. But this one has so much, I mean, I love it, like as Stephanie described, the people get it. The, the folks at the venues are like, oh, great. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. I get it. It goes right here. I get this. No problem. Um, if they just, we could just keep them from taking the cups home. That's the problem, I think. <laughs> well, well, let's, uh, let's, let's dive in here a little bit more. You know, I, I think I, I find a lot of the time we can be, we can become so busy wrapped up in, in, in executing on what we're trying to do that, it, that we often don't have the time to step back and, and strategize and think, well, how could we do things differently? And like, like you were just saying, Pat, you know, recognizing that there's all of these kind of opportunities for, for disrupting the single use paradigm in places where it just makes sense to do that. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's a, we've got this inertia of the status quo that really needs to be, you know, pushed against until we can get some momentum to move it in, in the opposite direction. And so I'm really excited about this project because to me, it embodies reuse Seattle really embodies what we want to see out there in the world, which is, you know, businesses, you know, big and small and, uh, and city government officials and NGOs kind of coming together and figuring out how to build something that can work at scale. And so uh, I'm curious just to start with like who I know we, we've had, we, now we had PR three, our friends, Amy and Claudette on the show, not that long ago. And we, we touched on their work to help catalyze the project, but you know, tell us a little bit more about the actors that have been involved in, in pulling this together and just you know, a little bit more about how the conversation started and then we'll, we'll dive into the project itself. 
Yeah, I'll say again, the Reuse Seattle initiative and all that we've accomplished was really just started as part of SPU's Green Business Program last summer. And the story of where we were and visioning and dreaming and scheming then to now is just all about partnerships. We, we wouldn't be here talking to you today without our partners like PR3 and without a few others that were just there alongside us and just had that vision from the beginning. I think you, you noted in your session with Amy and Claudette that um, SPU created that strong partnership with PR3 from the very early days. So we've been having like weekly meetings with Amy and Claudette and Mason, and we're so grateful for them mm. for sharing their passion, their expertise, this like strong commitment to developing what I think many of us are seeing might become international standards for integrating yes. yes. initiatives. They just took it, you know, step by step, piece by piece and figured out how can we set this up to make it work for the long term. So they've just been absolutely instrumental. Um, and it's been we're so grateful, so grateful to them for their ongoing partnership. Pat, did you want to jump in there? Well, I would, Matt. I, I, I yeah, t to build upon that, um, PR3 is amazing with their vision and their guidance and, and connecting us with important, uh, you know, conversations uh, in the industry. But uh, early on, uh, you, uh, to your question, some of the partners um, were uh, Keiko Nicolini from uh, RCUP. Uh, she came to town. Uh, we love Keiko. That's right. She, we were on a call <laughs> with her maybe a year ago. Maybe it was May of last year, actually. But uh, she came to town and she was with RCUP and we made a series of stops to some of the stadiums. We first thought, actually, Matt, we first we thought our first play was going to be the stadiums. We went to Lumen Field, which is a Seahawks stadium. We went to T-Mobile Park, which is the Mariners. We went to Climate Pledge Arena. Of course, it wasn't open yet, but we went to talk with people from there who were working in the F&B side. And we'd also had conversations with people in the ownership group, but we weren't getting through to the right folks, apparently, because uh, they, didn't, they didn't make a move on their opening. But the point is that... We first thought that we went for the big. We went we went big first, and yeah. through yeah. that conversation, we recognized you know these closed venues or quasi closed venues are are the locations we want to go to. We checked with UW University of Washington, they have a big stadium as well. But I think it was through uh, conversations through the Green Business Program that Stephanie was having with two women that worked at uh, for AEG, the big concert promotion company, and yep. they managed yep. the Showbox. Uh, it's called the Showbox, and there's two locations in town. They do a lot of live music. They do a whole bunch of live music venue work. And they were already on board with resource conservation. They were doing as much as they could for composting and trying to recycle and doing all the things they could. And uh, both... Um, both the Shannon and Amy from AEG were terrific. I think, Stephanie, you had a, an, the initial walkthrough with them. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, I'll say once we had like SPU's commitment and then PR3 and their commitment to standards, like Pat mentioned, we just started casting a wide net. We met with businesses big and small, our like early adopters and go-to businesses, the stadiums. Um, and then we also started connecting with nonprofit organizations like the Washington Environmental Council and it was actually sort of serendipitous. The Washington Environmental Council had gotten a grant from the Coca-Cola Foundation <laughs> as part of their like 2030 reuse objectives. Um, and it was supposed to fund like recycling and plastic pollution work with Seattle businesses. So we connected, Pat and I chatted with Tina Montgomery from WEC, and we started to tell her like, so we're having conversations, we've met with the big venues, they have a lot of questions, uh, there's a lot of logistics to work out. Let's start maybe thinking about like smaller venues we could look at and really think about like these closed loop venues that Pat mentioned. And we actually started thinking about um, music venues like from mm -hmm. experience, going to lots of shows, getting more, lots of beer and wine and disposable cups that it's yeah. just like a great first stop. So it was actually um, our cup, as, as uh, Pat mentioned, our cup came into the mix when we realized so many of the questions we were getting were like super tactical. These mm -hmm, venues wanted to know exactly what materials are going to be used, how many they needed, how they'd be collected. So that very first Reuse Seattle like official visit was our cup, myself, Tina from WBC. Um, we went to this showbox music venue and it was just incredible again to see like that passion was just ignited right away. Shannon from AEG and showbox was like, si sign us up. Like we're on board. 
And then they're part of the Seattle Music Commission um, and the Washington Nightlife and Music Association and started getting all of our other music venues excited on board. It was really just so serendipitous that all these partners kind of came together and just created momentum right out of the Amazing. gate. Amazing. Was this, was this meeting that you guys had, was this last fall? It was. It was. You know, I, I saw Amy I saw Amy in Edinburgh in October. We had a mutual friend that had that had uh brought us uh to Scotland <laughs> uh in the in in the you know, I think it was like right as the Delta wave was was ending and, and before Omicron and we had this brief window of time to go to conferences. And um and so anyway, I remember Amy being like, yep, I'm flying to Seattle tomorrow. <laughs> I got, I gotta get this project off the ground. So that was that was the meeting. That was really the the thing that that started to get the ball really rolling in the right direction. That was it. That was it. That, the timing of that, Matt, was also that the Climate Pledge Arena opened uh, their first events, their first concerts were that that same week, and through because of their participation over the years in this in this group called Venues Now, they hosted the uh, Venues Now. Uh, facility-focused conference, uh, sports facility-focused conference at Seattle Center. So mm-hmm. our cup was in, was there attending that, coincidentally, wow. and other reuse folks were there as well. But so we we've as as Stephanie and I mentioned, we work with we've talked to a lot of the reuse practitioners out there. We are engaged. We're hearing from them. We're inviting them. We want folks to come to Seattle. We're so fortunate to have our cup step forward and build. They're building out a full uh, wash hub here to service the sites they've already got uh, plans to work with. So. You know, we want to build upon that. We want to do more. We, there's so many different sectors and, and, you know, kind of sections of the food and beverage industry that, that they got a pretty, they've, they've got experience in that venue music space. So it's a good fit for them there. And we're just delighted to have them here in Seattle. And we meet with them weekly as well. You know, the, the Rio Seattle team, it is, as Stephanie said, it's all about partnerships. It's, you know, PR3 partnership. It's the RCUP partnership. It's partnership with uh, the Upstream, the NRN, the GRF. I mean, we could go yeah. on. It's just like there's so many venues and opportunities. U.S. Plastics Pact. I mean, we're engaging as much as we can with as many uh, orgs as we can. Yeah. Plus, I also, one more thing, one more plug is King County. You know, Seattle sits within King County, one of the a great county government group and folks that work at the county are equally passionate about moving reuse into the, into the forefront here. I love it. Yeah. And this is, you know, let's, so, so let's, let's dive a little bit more into the project here. I, I'm really curious about, you know, how it works. I, I'm, I'm excited to hear about all the different players and how you guys have helped to bring everybody together to create this project. But what, what is the project itself? How, do, how does it work and, and what are your plans for the future? Well, so, so the cups are a polypropylene um, rigid plastic cup that our cup provides to most venues. Uh, they come in a couple sizes. As Stephanie was mentioning before, you get when you get into this, and we've been present for these conversations, you got the bar manager at the club who wants to know, okay, what cups are we talking about? And do they have fill lines for a double shot, a, you know, a, all these different drink type things? And then there's the draft beer. And so they really do. They have the experience. They've, they've done this stuff before. Um, and then also on the collection side, it's like, where will the bins be placed? Can we eliminate a bunch of bins? So doing walkthroughs of facilities to just pull back on the number of bins offered to the patrons for one. And then increasing, improving the signage so that it's clear where the cans and bottles would go and where the cups would go. Because by the time you get to this, you're really, you know, some clubs are using a plastic cup for this and a compostable cup for right, that. And right, right. this just clears all that up. You you pull out all of the single use cups and you insert all reuse. And so on that side, there's a lot of detail to figure out. Then they've got to stage the cups for pickup for the next morning. Uh, they've got to make sure the staff are all trained. I mean, these are all you know, this is like coming back to recycling coordination 101. You you have to talk yep. to the custodians and the and the cleaning crew. You have to engage with the servers and and the bar managers and the food you know the kitchen managers. It's there's so many moving parts and people who are engaged in the process. But what's been promising about this is when you see everybody in these meetings in these you know kind of roundtable chats that we get to. Um, everybody nods along and they're very, they're excited about it. I think there's a recognition. I think it's, it comes natural, I think, to see yeah. 
okay, this makes sense. And I don't know why we haven't done this before, but okay, we're ready. Let's do this, you know? Well, and it seems like ARCUP as well, like they, they've they actually streamlined their system. They've learned a lot having done this for a number of years now. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this is this is not like a, a new thing for them. They can come into these places with, with their whole operations, with the training, and, and they can engage people. And I'm sure I'm sure they're leaning on you guys to help uh, <laughs> help them uh, uh, continue and sustain that engagement over time. But you know, so to, how many how many venues are we talking about uh, right now, and 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 what are, what are your plans for for building it out? Yeah, great question. I'll I'll just say like in terms of our vision, I think we see Reuse Seattle as this true public private partnership, and we want to create a standardized citywide reusable food and beverage container system. And as Pat mentioned, we're starting with cups. We've started with one service provider, um, but we actually just have another service provider, GoBox, who's based in Portland, is investing yep. in Seattle, just signed their Wash Hub lease. So awesome. we're now really starting to realize that vision. And, and I should say GoBox is going to have clamshells and work with uh, food service businesses, grocery stores. So it's really coming together where we have committed to allowing um, service providers who are mostly doing that kind of pickup and offsite washing and sanitization and return. Um, they agree to adopt the PR3 standards and they get going in, in Seattle and we're helping them with lead generation and connecting them with interested businesses. Um, and it's really the vision is to create just a truly inclusive program where reuse is it's accessible, it's affordable, it's convenient for everyone. Um, and so we're just now starting to see these um, pieces come together where we've got multiple service providers, different materials, a couple of different wash facilities, and now really get to like to put that, that, uh, that you know, test that hypothesis. Can we really make this work and create this next step, our future vision of an interoperable system? So we've got at least uh, 10 different individual sites and venues that are signed up to get going. Um, we just launched with Woodland Park Zoo and their outdoor summer mm-hmm. concert series last week. Super fun to like, Pat and I were both at that first show and to hear the Indigo Girls give us a shout out on the stage was just oh, like awesome. a dream come true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah so... Is- and really more um, individual businesses and sites are signing up and more service providers are saying we're ready to invest. We're ready. We see this as the future and we're ready to invest in Seattle. I love that story. Uh, Indigo Girls giving you guys a shout out. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. My my 15 year old daughter is now listening to the Indigo Girls. So, you know, what, <laughs> what which is what I was listening to them when I was her age as well. So it's funny how all this stuff keeps coming around, but um, I get, you know, if it's good, it's good. Right. You know? And, uh, and I think too, I think that's one of the things I love about selling reuse is that it, it, it's, you know, not only is it good for the environment, it's good for business, especially when you get to scale and it's a better user experience, better customer experience. And so we're just selling good all the way around. And so I'm, I'm curious a little bit more about just the initial reception. And, and I do want to, I want to dig back into the plans. Um, but I'm just curious, uh, how's the initial reception been thus far? And what was, what was your experience? I saw all the celebratory photos on LinkedIn and I was super pumped to, uh, to tag you guys uh, on that. But yeah, tell, tell us a little bit more about how the rollout's gone. Well, it, so the first three shows, as Stephanie mentioned, we launched at Zootunes. And we would have liked to have launched multiple music venues across Seattle because Seattle's really, you know, actually one of the themes of the Seattle Music Commission is Seattle, city of music. So um, that's on the <laughs> cups, actually. Um, so uh, the goal would have been to launch at all these music venues, multiple types, large and small, you know, small clubs with like maybe 80 or so attendants up to the larger venues, uh, 5,000 or more at some of these. But without the wash hub, they had to, our cup had to say, well, we can start, but we've got to start with a select site to kind of get things going because they're, they're actually, their first wave of wash operation is happening in a commissary uh, kitchen. So it's a very, it's a, they're, they're walking before they run, you know, you kind of say. So once they get the hub open and they're able to take on the full like schedule of these five or six major music venues, then we're going to, then I just see the other music venue manager saying, yep, I'm in. Yep. Sign me up as well. So we're really, we're hope we're looking to that to be later in July. I think Um, they'll probably bring on a couple more venues before then 
just in their current getting better at doing the temporary wash facility situation. So it's all about logistics and you just have to do a little incremental start here and there. And, um, and the, and the Cups team is great. The, the, they, so they are actually already do some of this work in Denver, Colorado as well. Yep. Some of the AEG yep. music venues there. So they flew a couple of their Denver uh, folks up to help with the launch here. And that, that was just a great, um, you know, gave us a great sense of security, to be honest. Like, okay, yeah. people who've done yeah. this are coming to town. They're going to help us launch this thing. Because Stephanie and I, I mean, our role is a, is we're connecting dots. You know, we're not in charge yep. of cups and cleaning of yep. cups. We yeah. are trying to contribute to conversations to help, you know, managers and F&B directors and stuff to, to say, okay, I see it. I'm glad the city's in support of it. I'm glad the Green Business Program is there to, to be a backup and to be helping out with information and such. But it's really a B2B model. It's from the business yep. of a reuse yep. practitioner to a site, a facility manager, an operation. And our, our, our next best, you know, option is to just find more of these venues to sign on, and that's where we get into our partnership with King County and beyond. Uh, we've got in many, as many communities around North America have, we have uh, tribal casinos in the area who also have music venues who are very busy, very active music, you know, comedy and music shows all the time. So we're looking at that as the next, you know, the next concentric circle of, of venues and such, and and also other quasi. We call them like, you know, closed system venues where you can't really, you're not supposed to leave a music venue with a beer in your hand, right? A cup of beer. Right. It's not <laughs> in New Orleans. So in Seattle, there's laws against that. So um, that's nice. It's a nice landing, you know, a safe landing pad for, for our cup to come in here or for any vendor really um, to, to just, you know, you're going to get most of your cups back at the end of the night. So I, I really appreciate what you just said, Pat, because, you know, it's from what, I, what I'm hearing, it sounds like you're really playing a connector catalyst, you know, kind of convening and communicator role. And I, I appreciate those roles because that's that's pretty much upstream's bread and butter like that. Those mm-hmm. those are the same roles that we play in this space. And um, and so, you know, I, I, I want to talk about just the plans. And I really appreciated what you just said, Stephanie, about you know, this is just the baby steps, right? Like the, the big, the big um, plan is to have a citywide uh, system for reusable cups and reusable containers with multiple service providers using interoperable infrastructure and <laughs> wash hubs throughout the city. I mean, this is a big vision. So I know I'm talking to, you know, folks that are really bought in on this vision. Where are the rest of the decision makers, um, you know, maybe within in the city of Seattle or, or the community, you know how how bought in are, are people in, into this big vision at this point, and how much how much heavy lifting are you guys having to do on the vision painting side? Well, I'll just add. I mean, I think this is one of those initiatives that everyone who understands what we're trying to do and the problem we're trying to solve, it's such a like kind of light bulb moment. Like, absolutely, this is absolutely the next step in this evolution. Um, and the re- to your question about reception, I just, it exceeded my wildest expectations. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually volunteered to staff the booths where we had um, stations where we had compost, recycling, garbage, and reuse. And this was our first time interacting with the public to see wh- how are people going to take getting a fourth bin? How's this going to yeah, go? Yeah. I just couldn't believe how it both reinforced recycling and composting right. I had multiple people people of all ages, interests who were taking the like butter, uh, you know, packet out of their compostable food and tray and putting it in the garbage and then putting that in the compost and then putting their cup in the, re- in the wow. bin. And people were thanking us. They were, volunteers were going around and like picking up uh, the few cups that were left over at the end of the show and coming up to us and making jokes about, these weren't all mine. These weren't all mine. <laughs> <laughs> like minutes after the show of, of 4,000 people in an outdoor summer festival, we looked out at the ground and I actually actually took a picture. There was was cups on the floor. There were no trash of any kind on the floor. It was clean and clear. And just to see that like transformation, it was such a, um, such a confirmation that this is something people are excited about. So I think the public's ready. I think all the interest we're getting from reuse service providers who call us and say, hey, I've got like venture capital and I'm ready to invest in starting operations in the city. You can just see there's there's momentum and there's strong belief that this is the direction we're going. So that's that's the easy part. I think the 
The challenging part is because there's so much interest, we're getting so many calls from so many different providers. Right, right. It's really like helping connect them to that interoperable connected vision. That's the piece that we're really moving into next. And again, we now have these two facilities that are opening up and a commitment, like let's figure out what happens if we get, you know, materials from another service provider, how, what technology solutions can we use to track efficiency, we, we've always been sort of researching what are the like public collection bin receptacles? What do those look like? What yep. kind of tech do we need to enable to make that process happen? But we also realize we can't just like launch with uh, developing public place collection bins until there's like a few people who are getting reusable packaging from local businesses. Right, so, right, um, right. That's been, it's been helpful to keep that long-term vision in mind while also just like making these incremental steps to get partners on board and excited and connected. So I, I would love to just dig into this interoperable infrastructure piece because, you know, this is something that we recognized has been a, a, a significant challenge. We were we were kind of deep into this, like right before <laughs> right before COVID hit. And, you know, that kind of slowed slowed everything down uh, uh, on a project we were working on. But, you know, I, I was really excited to see that, um, you know, Amy and Claudette and PR3 really kind of picked up. The, the mantle and and really started thinking through about how to do this at scale and what what are the what are the things you need to have in place to do that and you know I, I would say that um, you know one of the biggest challenges that I see out there that we as an organization see is that so much of what's happening are, are either individual brands doing their own individual pilots or reuse service companies trying to build their own business and build their own infrastructure as opposed to everybody coming together and building, you know, this interoperable infrastructure that can serve multiple brands and multiple service providers on the same platform. And so, you know, how tell tell me more about just the vision and the ideas and the conversations and even digging into some of the the barriers that you guys have encountered as you're really trying to build out this vision. So I mean, that for us at Seattle Public Utilities, we see that role to play um, in public place collection as, as a sort of knitting together these disparate different collection efforts or program efforts, I would say. So it might be a cup or a clamshell or a to-go container of some kind that, that a particular reuse practitioner comes to town, they identify a certain fraction of the food service industry, usually food and beverage, and then so they're going to start substituting reuse for those single-use containers, and then and then the infrastructure has to come in. So if it's not one of these closed venues, that's when we really get into the public, public area collection, and the tech will have to come in. There's so many platforms. Everybody's, you know, it's the best mousetrap kind of thing. Like, everybody's got the better model. And so often, and I, and I love it, they're so, um, they, meaning the reuse practitioners, are so uh, passionate about it. They're investing a lot into their platforms. And I really would, would you know, those who are listening, really, you know, pivot over to the PR3 standards and, and engage in that process because um, I would hate to see a reuse practitioner build out their platform that is the Betamax, you know, of reuse. Yep. Yep. Um, that just, yep. just close, but not quite. And, and yep. then that format or that model uh, becomes, you know, a standalone kind of thing that doesn't integrate. Because from the city's perspective, we really are striving towards integration. That's why we value the partnership with PR3 so greatly. And we just, we feel like now is the time for everyone to make sure to pivot over, engage, read the, you know, the drafted, their draft at this time. You know, this is not a, these are not written in stone. These are standards that Claudette and others at PR3 are drafting. And it's a perfect time for folks to understand what the guidelines are going to be. And, you know, from a city perspective, we need these guidelines. We can't, it'll be the wild west if we just let it just go right yeah. now. And everybody's yep. got different platforms. And, you know, there's, there's a vision though others have where, you know, maybe it's, it's the clamshell sector does on this platform, whereas cups are on this platform. But when you think about the public side of it, like the consumer side, they can't be having multiple apps. They can't, you know, they can't yep. be a DoorDash app. And, but at the same time, Matt, you've got Coca-Cola and Starbucks and other major companies who are, they're looking to build out their own consumer engagement platform. So um, yep. it's, there's so much tech to do. There's so much tech work. And that's not my space. That's for sure. Right, I just, right. I think it's, uh, it's encouraging and it's, you know, it's, it helps me get through my 
operational questions when I know that, okay, that side of things is going to be worked out because PR3 is on point. You know, when I think about, you know, just the the challenges of, of interoperable infrastructure, you know, I, I look at, at some of the different models that exist out there today. So, you know, just south of you guys, you go down to Oregon and, you know, you've got the Oregon Brewers Association that has a partnership with the uh, the Returnal Beverage Cooperative there that runs the deposit return system for all beverage containers mm-hmm. and those and and OBRC they own the refillable bottles and they lease them to the brewers at a at a cost that's less than single use and they manage that system. You know that's a that there's something that's simple and elegant to that one service provider owning all the bottles and then leasing them out to the folks. You know it's, it's a similar contract that you would have with your single use one way containers. Now you just have it on on reuse refill and they do all the washing and collecting and so on. Um, I I'm curious about just the the challenges of when you let's say you you want to create an, a marketplace and I, what I hear you guys saying is that you want to create a marketplace whereby the collection infrastructure and the tech infrastructure is is easy for the consumer, right? Everywhere you go, whether you're at home, at the office, you're out in the park, you're at the ball game, it, it's all the same. You understand it. This goes here, this goes there, um, and I'm good and, and I'm on my way. The challenge then comes with... <laughs> Now all of that stuff is getting collected and you've got all these different service providers, you know, uh, uh, containers and cups that are all kind of getting mixed together. Um, I know that the standards make sure that those things are standardized, that it's the same type of container and the same dimensions. And that helps with the, the wash hub and the washing facilities. But how do you sort out everyone's product, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're not, if you don't have a, a, like a model where one one entity kind of owns everything and then leases it out to the service providers, how do you how do you get the product back to the folks that that want it? I want to just jump in here real quick and say um, first gratitude for Upstream and all the work you're doing to like <laughs> these conversations and best practices. Um, I also want to say that. It was really exciting is each, I feel like every day this is happening, but each week we're talking to, like Pat mentioned, leaders like Starbucks and Coca-Cola who have these public reuse commitments and are doing all these pilots and gathering all this data. Does the like QR code versus RFIT chip make it yeah. easier to get packaging back? So one thing we need everyone to do is like really share best practices and learnings yep. from that. And I think this is, again, you're an organization that's helping to do that. Um, but the interesting piece that's come out of that is it really, that specific question, how are we going to collect multiple reuse service providers, different types of packaging at like these individually owned and operated wash facilities? We just had this conversation facilitated by PR3, again, shout out to Amy and Claudette, with GS1, the company that like oversees the development of barcodes that are on consumer goods packaging. You get, you know, every grocery store can stock items and, and you know, have the same scanning equipment that scans that. Um, Using that same kind of technology and approach to getting not not worrying about standardizing packaging or apps, but standardizing the like actual barcodes of reading of material so that it facilitates kind of tracking and logistics. So that's kind of a conversation that's emerging and really exciting. GS1, like many others, are excited to help partner with Reuse Seattle and pilot something here. So we'll actually be able to test um, potentially at a big stadium like Lumen Fields with their music venue that's connected. Um, does that work? When you're talking about a 70,000 person uh, you know, seating capacity venue, can we quickly scan bins to get the reusable cups back? And can they go to a central facility mixed with other materials and get that back? That's like the question we're trying mm-hmm. to solve right now. Mm-hmm. And what's exciting is I feel like we have the partnerships in place to test that out and to actually pilot it. Um, so I think it's a big question and it's obviously like not has not been solved at scale yet. Um, but I think we're getting so close to asking the right questions and being able to test it out. I think the other part to say on that, Matt, is the consistency or the how the industry has our existing standards on sizes of cups. You know, there's there's only you can't get every possible ounce of cup. There's there's a certain you know set of cups, so there's some organization there. Obviously, in the used beverage container side, there's you know 12 ounce, 
you know, yep. 16 ounce yep. and so on. So that's, that's encouraging that the reuse industry doesn't have to figure it out. They can, they just follow the single use, you know, pathway yeah. that's been established because that's what the market is expecting. That's what food and Bev people are using. And so they don't want to shift away. But I will say again, on some of these walkthroughs we've done with some of the restaurants and bar folks, they're happy to simplify <laughs> and just go yep. to a couple options instead of having the three or four, you know, or with a fill line on a cup. It's not that complicated and you can do this. Um, you know, do they use lids? Well, you don't have to. Okay, we won't. I mean, a lot of places are trying to remove lids and straws from their packaging just because it's unnecessary or having the, the sippy cup kind of lid instead of the straw. So that kind of transition that we're seeing, even on the single use side, is helpful to the reuse side as well. And then the other consistency part is, you know, you think about like um, Expedia, where they just, they have all the different airlines lined up. They know how to engage the other platforms on their inventory and availability and whatnot. The same can be true for the reuse industry. Once the standards are set and once the system is established, you could see all of these individual companies being able to live under the umbrella of a reuse uh, system. And that's that's a yep. bit of a pie in the sky hope for me. You know, again, I'm the operations guy trying to help get things set up on the ground, but I'm hoping that the tech side can uh, meet up with us on the operations side and kind of make this a seamless system. Yeah, hundred percent. I think we have the exact same hope, and I think that there, the, I I think that the future bodes well for that vision. I mean, just from what we're seeing, that's being what's being deployed around the world. I mean, I think that the future bodes well for that vision, and it it may it may mean that you know the bottle washing hub might be might be next door to the cup and container <laughs> washing hub, and they might have slightly different you know technology in place to do it. But um, you know, we want it. We want to make it so that it works in a streamlined way for the consumer and for businesses. And, um, you know, that, that kind of coming together and figuring this all out together and having this interoperable platform. I mean, you guys, I'm, I'm so excited about what's going to come out of you being first movers and, and experimenting and learning and teaching the rest of the country and, and even the rest of the world about, you know, what, what, what's working and what's not working. So, you know, just a couple, couple more questions for you guys. You know, one, I'm, I'm really curious about, you know, we had this interesting uh, conversation over drinks at Circularity last month about should, should, should we have an, an additional reuse bin or, or should it, uh, and, and actually Susan uh, doesn't want us to use the word bin, um, should it be a, an additional reuse cart or are we just using the, you know, the recycling cart or, you know, some, something else that already exists? And I'm just wow. curious about where, where you guys are in that, in that dangerous territory here, Matt. Yeah. Yes. Um, no, of course, <laughs> at this point, Stephanie and I, will, we're on the same page for sure. We're, we're not talking about residential place collection because uh, yeah. it's just so infantile, the, the whole system. One of the challenges we have, like Stephanie alluded to earlier, is like we need to make people aware that there's a reuse, you know, option and system and stuff. And that's where I'm a big fan of incrementalism. I know that was a, yep. there, that was actually... Uh, discussed at Circularity where, you know, transformative change is the way to go. Well, I, I, to me, I hear that. I'm like, I, I want that. I certainly want that. I certainly see the value in that. And there's many moments of transformative change for different decision makers and different, you know, locations and facilities and such. But this is an incremental play for me. My perspective is that Focusing on strategically on locations where you know you can make the switch from single use, you know, from the make taste take waste model to to this reuse model, and then growing out from there to the, to sort of quasi closed facilities like movie theaters or certain venues where people can leave with a cola in their hand in a cup. They you know they're not restricted from leaving with beverage containers, but do they, you know, can we go to those places next? So it's like teaching the public about reuse in certain venues of everybody's lifestyles and then moving into, into the wild, you know, and at the same time, a lot of these reuse practitioners, they're not waiting for me. They're not waiting for my logic. They are moving forward. Right. You know, right. you go to other cities, like you said a moment ago, Matt, like Seattle's leading. Well, heck, there's so many people out there doing so many things in so many cities that it's everybody's yep. leading. They're just leading in a slightly different sector or, or fraction of the food and beverage industry. The only thing I'll say, just kind of picking up the baton from the conversation around uh, fourth bin, collection at home, that dynamic 
it's so important to us to create an inclusive program and like really center equity and access that just removes barriers to participation and motivates all to participate in the reuse. We want to, of course, make it available everywhere in the norm here in Seattle. And we don't want you to need um, an app-based, you know, uh, access mm -hmm. point. So I think that's the kind of the next step for us to really focus on. How can we engage, just make it super easy and convenient and accessible um, without um, needing to navigate that piece? And I think that's where eventually I think an, an option to put it in your curbside bin and get it collected at that central facility feels like an important evolution point um, to really make sure we're capturing all that material. Um, what, we, what we saw at that that first launch event was people were excited. They were taking the cups home with them. It had, <laughs> it had the city of Seattle, you know, city of music cup on it. We had a great return rate there at the site, but we did have some people who were taking them home with them. And I think that option feels important for kind of long term, yeah. just to be able to have that inclusive aspect. I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, so many of, of the the services that are being offered by the service providers, they are app-based services. And, you know, part of the advantage that they can offer uh, brands or their customers is the technology and the tracking and the customer insight data and all of that. And so how how do you, <laughs> you know, balance out those commercial interests in, you know, trying to ensure that the that the companies that are that are trying to make money from from building these reuse uh, services and systems uh, are that you're balancing that need with the the need to make sure that it's equitable and inclusive and accessible for all people in the city. Well, that's another role where the city can jump in. Uh, you know, municipalities and, and county governments and such can be helpful in that in that process. Uh, there could be funding to help, but uh, trying to strategize a different model where the system doesn't rely uh, so much on the tech that an individual might retain, that, it, that it, there is a, a way for a person to engage in the reuse economy without having to own a smartphone or something like that. So these are TBD items. This is going to be stuff we work on moving forward. Yeah. We've got to build out the system to build upon the system, though. You, you, we can't, these are, these are add-ons or additions, in my view, that we often do with, with city work. You build the first model, the first set, and you move forward with it, and then you see how you need to adapt it and, and kind of retool it uh, to be accessible and inclusive um, we certainly want to do that. We've already been doing some of the groundwork for that, though. We had a student research team, a graduate student research team from the University of Washington do a focus uh, survey work on the, uh, the adaptability and uh, accessibility to reuse systems by all sizes and different shapes of, uh, of uh, food and beverage companies across Seattle. So we've got you know, research information there that will help us. And we've also heard, we continue, as we bring this point up, we continue to hear companies and folks say, yes, we're committed to this as well. We will, we will work with you on this. So at this point, you know, at our early stage of the launch for Rio Seattle, we, keep, we have it in mind and, and we're going to be working on that moving forward. That's great, Pat. And I just want to kind of uh, go a, a step further and say that I think there's we're fortunate in that we have an economic driver. It's going to cost sites more if they don't get their cup or clamshell back than if they do. So there's really some economic drivers to really create a system that's integrated where they're getting materials back. Um, and I think that will be an important next step in our conversations to really like make sure that that point is clear, that if we can actually create an interoperable system, costs go down for everyone. And that's really how we get to scale. Um, and then I want to say there's also some really great models on the consumer goods packaging front, companies like Loop yep. and El Gramo, who yep. are showing us how to do that, taking lots of different kinds of packaging um, and collecting it. And, you know, there's lots of other sort of logistics and important considerations there. But again, I think we're seeing some great emerging models and really feel like if we can keep the conversation going and keep people connected, we're, we're going to get there. Good, good plugs for our previous podcast episodes with Loop and El Gramo right there. If you want to dive in more, feel free to go check out the Indisposable podcast and our episodes with those folks. 
So just a couple more questions for you guys. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, we spent a lot of time working on on policy and helping to to figure out what are the kinds of policies that are going to help drive the new reuse economy. You know, what kinds of conversations have have you, have you had in Seattle about the the kinds of policies that can help enable um, what you're what you're doing to scale? Well. At Seattle Public Utilities, we've got a great team, McKenna Morgan, Ashka Sufkiv, and we really have other folks who are diving in to help out with the policy work. It's really um, EPR. It's probably the best way to think about policy from our perspective. We have uh, the good, a good chance this next session in Washington State to pass a comprehensive EPR bill that will have reuse uh, goals or reuse you know, percentages integrated into that. Um, we also have local policy in Seattle. Our current food packaging law requires all food service businesses to use either recyclable or compostable packaging. But of course, the law allows for and encourages durables, reusables as well. Yep. So if they're going to use yep. single use, that's where the compliance part of the law comes into play. Um, there has to be approved compostable packaging or it has to be recyclable packaging. So foam, like for example, EPS foam packaging is banned in Seattle. So we, we have policy frameworks that we can build upon. We can start uh, to engage further in those ways. But I really think on a larger scale to really pull through uh, corporate and, and large company partnerships, it's the EPR model at the state level. I was just going to put a plug in for Zero Waste Washington, who is working on policies to have require durables or reusables for on-site dining. So those examples of that, those policies, I think, will help the conversation move forward. Big shout out to our friend Heather at Zero Heather Trim at Zero Waste Washington. For we sure, love, love what you're doing. Love what you're doing, Heather. Yeah. Um. So so just last question for you guys. I mean, thinking about you know EPR, this is this is really the question about you know if you could wave a magic wand and mm. summon and summon resources or remove barriers, you know, what, what would you ask for? My magic wand waving would entail the, uh, that reuse becomes the norm, you know, that this, uh, <laughs> this model that we've grown up within, this model of single use, you know, make, take, waste, as I was saying earlier, uh, it's, it's not, it doesn't provide the promise that we were told, we were sold to be efficient, to be economical, but with all of the externalities and all of the, resource, you know, depletion factors involved. Um, and the recognition, I think, by the general public that climate change is impacting our communities around the world and that these, you know, instances of crazy weather and crazy things are, it's all connected. So um, this is a way for folks to see uh, that that it's a, it's a model that makes sense. And I also think that people, as Stephanie mentioned, they're ready for it. They see it, they get it, they understand it. There's no resistance to it. Um, I think that the single use model, it's fine in some instances. You know, there are some uh, situations where you don't have the facility or the infrastructure available to support a reuse situation. We'll get to those later. <laughs> um, <laughs> right now, there's plenty of opportunity that it's just silly that we're, you know, we're mining and manufacturing, producing, delivering, shipping all these containers, yes. these single-use containers know, for one, one beverage to enjoy or one meal, and then off it goes to some other system where we try and clean it, refine it, and reuse it. But it's uh, it's not truly reuse, of course. So that's my, I mean, yep. it's not it's not a simple magic wand wave. I can I couldn't boil it down for you, Matt. But that's that's my thought. No, I love it. Changing the norm. Uh, that's that's the whole goal. Absolutely. Absolutely. What about you, Stephanie? I just, I got to say grants to cover the cost differential mm -hmm. for our small businesses, our small BIPOC or black indigenous people of color owned food service businesses that don't have capacity or space or funds mm -hmm. for on-site dishwashing to be able to cover the cost differential from their single use compostable packaging that they have now to reusable packaging would be um, just a, a primary driver for me in the near term and then, of course, public infrastructure dollars for those those second-able public place collection bins and that connected system. I think those are my um, my short-term wish list items. Love it, love it. From from the big picture vision to like the very important uh, building blocks to getting where we need to go. So, well, guys, this has been such a pleasure to connect with you both. I have to say that um, you know this conversation went by so fast. I can't believe we've already been talking for an hour. Um, but I just just love connecting with you. I'm so excited about what you're doing. 
you know, last question, where, where can our listeners learn more about you and what you're up to? And, and, uh, and if you would like to provide your, any information for them to connect with you, uh, please do so. Well, we've got our own website, of course, uh, reuseseattle.org. It's a place uh, that is, is a highlight of our partnerships. And uh, on that site, they'll find information about what we're up to. Uh, we'll have information, you know, illustrating some of our activities and some of the launch uh, photos and things that we, we uh, undertook last week. So, yeah, it's exciting. Yes. Thank you so much for the opportunity to chat today. This was so fun. I'm feeling so inspired and fired up, and we would love to talk to all of you. So, yeah, visit us, reuseseattle.org. Reach out. We'll talk about how we can stay connected. And then uh, Stephanie at CascadiaConsulting.com if you want to reach out to me directly and chat anytime. I'm, I'm really excited and, and happy to talk more about how to expand reuse in Seattle and beyond. Amazing. Well, you guys, enthusiasm is just contagious and it's been so fun. So I hope I hope we get to do this again sometime, maybe maybe uh, six months to a year down the road when you've got more sites signed up and the, the projects expanded even more. So thanks again so for coming on the show today, guys. Thanks, Matt. You have a great rest of the day. And that's our show. If you like what you're hearing, help spread the word. Subscribe to the Indisposable Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Add a review, talk us up. Nobody spreads a message like you. The Indisposable Podcast is brought to you by Upstream, sparking innovative solutions to plastic pollution, envisioning a world without it, and empowering businesses, communities, and individuals to imagine and co-create this future with us. You can find resources mentioned on today's episode as well as learn more about Upstream's work at www.upstreamsolutions.org. Follow us on social and join the movement. There's a better way than throwaway.